0: if you open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, by way of reminder, um, you know, the Apostle Paul in the five, pre- uh, the five six previous chapters, really, uh, Paul has dealt with issues concerning the Corinthian church. Uh, the first one from really chapters 1 through 4 were divisions. They are going after Paul, they're going after Apollos, they're going after Peter, but they're dividing, they're, they're splintering, and Paul wanted to remind them to stay unified. And I really want you to think about this. Um, if you open your eyes, if you look at the world, look at the church through eyes of faith, not through eyes of nationalism or political or ethnic ethnicity or the color of your skin or your gender, but look through life through the cross, right? We're going to look through, the, through life through the cross of Jesus Christ. What forces, what, how do you think the enemy's dividing us today? The church. I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about the church. How is he causing us to go in different directions after different things or ideas, ideologies, uh, personalities, whatever it might be, and are we chasing them? Or are we staying focused on the person and work of Jesus Christ? And our mission, our mission as a church, is to advance the kingdom of God. That means bring God's power and authority and values into the world in which we have influence in. Right? That means our homes. That means our marriages. That means with our children. That means in our families, but this is what our mission is, but what is distracting us from that mission? Paul wants to get them focused back on Jesus Christ. In, in, verse, in chapters 5 and 6, he deals with the issue of sexual morality, and, um, and as we've seen uh, in, in this area of sexual morality, Paul hits them kind of hard and reminds them that, you know, if you practice these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. That our lives, our, we are, who are we? We are temples of the Holy Spirit. And the Apostle Paul talks about that. So in chapter 7, the title of my message today is God's Gifts, Marriage, Sex, and Singleness. And I want you to see something. Each one of these is God's gift. If you're married, God's gift. If you're single, it's God's gift. And in marriage, we enjoy the relationship, the intimacy. I'll be honest with you. I have a hard time saying sex in church. It really bothers me. Like all week I was like, "Oh, and then you know, second service we have Ben, and he has nine kids, and I think three or four of them sit here and they, they come into the service, and I wrote him, I said, bro um i'm teaching I'm teaching First Corinthians chapter seven, I, I just want to prepare you, and I'm like, I mean, just read it, and then I, I'm going to teach it and he's like hey, man, we have these conversations all the time. Go say whatever you want to say. I'm like, are you sure? You know? He's like, yes. And he's like, embarrass my children. And I'm like, he goes, then we'll talk about it on the way home. But so often I want us to think about this. If, if you were to ask somebody, if you're, someone was to ask you, what's better, marriage or singleness, what would you reply? Don't say it out loud. Keep it to yourself. But what would you reply? See, the myth is God's best is marriage, right? The myth is God's best is marriage, and singleness is second best, right? Consolation prize. Sorry you couldn't find anybody. But what I want you to see in this chapter, what you're going to find with the Apostle Paul is that he says singleness is good. Singleness is better. And there's a context to that, and there's a theology behind it. But I want you to think about our demeanor, our mindset towards marriage. I want us to see something I found really interesting. How do young people view marriage in the last 20 years? how do young people view marriage in the last 20 years? In 2000, the average age that men got married was 26. There it is for you. Women, 25. In 2011, you know, 10 years later or so, men, 28.2. Women, 26.1. I found those those statistics interesting. And today, the average age of men is 30.6, almost 31. And now women, almost 29 years old. Before they get married, This was a headline of a a newspaper article about marriage and young people. It says, compared to other groups, more young adults view marriage as an old-fashioned, out-of-date, although more than half of them agree, the institution makes families and children better off. So they have these differing views. On one sense, it's old-fashioned, it's out-of-date, I'm going to have as many partners as I want, I'm going to have as as many friends with benefits as I can. Uh, Marriage is good for family and kids, but who wants to do that, right? Right? And that's the mindset, and the, the question we have to ask ourselves, I believe, and we'll get into it here in the second half of the message, is how do we communicate the value of our marriages? And I really want you to think about it. how do you talk about marriage to your friends, your girlfriends, your coffee buddies at work? Is it a positive thing, or is it, oh, she's the old ball and chain, right? Oh, he's just an old grump. Um, oh, marriage, and there's this negative connotation to it. Or do you have this mindset of, I married my best friend, man. I can imagine life without that, that person. Because that should be. We are blessed to, have, to be married. So again, as we look at this chapter, look with me again as Bob read to us this morning. But I want you to see, in verse 20 he says this, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So keep in mind, we are, he, we are looking at answers to questions that we don't see the question. We don't know exactly what their question was, but it had to do with singleness. It has to do with sex within marriage, right? And, there, and here are these groups of people. I want you to understand this too. There are really three or four groups of people in Corinth. And there are faithful believers like Chloe, right? We saw her back in chapter one. But we also saw in chapters five through seven, this libertarian group, right? These guys that look at faith philosophically, they look at it as a means to do what they want in the name of Christ or because of God's grace. So there's a libertarian group. Then there's, as we're going to see today, there's also an aesthetic group. Sex is <sighs> sex is bad, only like procreation, like we don't want to enjoy it. You know, that's part of our carnality. That's part of our animal instincts. And that's the way some people looked at it. And then there were just some other factions, maybe house churches, But I want you to see here, we're looking at unmarried Christians. So we look at singleness in this context. We're not looking at singleness in the world. We're looking at singleness in the church. So we're looking at unmarried Christians. And Paul spends a great deal of time talking about the single life. And here are the facts. This is interesting to me. Here are the facts that one out of every three adults in the United States are single. One out of every three adults in the United States are single. Now, in that singleness, but even within our own very church, there are three groups that make this number up. There are those that have never been married. There are those who are widows or widowers, and there are those who are divorced. But all three of these groups make up the singleness in our society and within our church. Now, again, there's not bad or good or different or anything like that. It's just what the, what the statistics are. So three groups of people, and that's the same thing in Paul's church. Those who had never been married, those who were divorced, and those who were widows or widowers. So Paul, I want you to see something and really think about this, especially if you're married. At one time, you were single, right? You don't come into this world married, right? You you were single. You know what it feels like. I didn't get married until I was almost 30. And to be honest with you, the reason why, when my parents divorced, I thought if they can't do it, what chances do I got? A mom and dad can't make this thing work. I mean, and I had so many failed relationships to that point. Why would I ever inflict myself upon another human being like that? You know? Like, it's just not gonna work out. That was my mindset until I found my wife, Amanda, and she was my best friend. And I remember, she had, we were talking about why we got married the other day, and, and I was looking at her, and I'm thinking, and I, I remember thinking this, I, I, wanted, I never wanted to live my life without you. I never wanted to live my life without you. Like, our laughter, our friendship, we're so different, <laughs> we're so different, we're night and day, but we met, we, we, we met each other's needs, it was, it was cool, and, um, and, you know, and, and that's the reason why, but I want us to see this, let's look at really a quick overview of this, verses one through nine, look how it breaks down for us, so um, the, verses one, seven, and eight, Paul starts with the question, he answers the question, starts with the question of singleness, Right? In verse 1, he teaches that celibacy is good, right? Celibacy is good. In verses 2 to 9, if you're living a celibate life, you're going to be tempted, right? If you're living a celibate life, you're going to be tempted. But in verse 7, he says celibacy is a gift from God. It's a gift from God. And what we're going to look at in verses 3 through 5, celibacy is wrong for married people. We'll get into that in in a second. But I want you to see that. We're going to look at our different attitudes when it concerns sex. So Paul says this, now concerning the first matters which I wrote to you, he says, um, but you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of temptation to sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The New Living translates translates it this way, now regarding the questions you asked in your letter, yes, it is good to abstain from sexual relations. But because there's so much sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Uh, so, that's, so we look at there, those first two verses, we begin to understand what Paul is talking about. He's talking about there are people in the church, that in married, they're, they're married and they view celibacy as an option within marriage. Paul says no. But then he has other people, men and women in the church, and they are single, and Paul is admonishing them, stay celibate. Do not, do not, he, he'll tell Timothy, he'll tell this church, flee sexual immorality. Flee sexual immorality. Now, if you're single, I want you to understand something. You do not have to be married to be a whole person. That's a myth. Our whole, my wholeness as a human being does not happen to me because I'm married, not because I have children. The wholeness that we have comes from the person of Jesus Christ. You you come into a marriage, and if you're a a person of faith, then you know this. Christ is in your heart. He's the one who makes us whole. Marriage is a gift. Singleness is a gift. I want to emphasize that. You do not have to be married to be a whole person. And I want you to look at verse 6. He says, but to each one has his own gift from God. Whether you are single or married, it is a gift from God, and there is a spiritual gift called celibacy. and It is a spiritual gift. Jesus would go on to say this in Matthew nine nineteen. But he said to them, verse 11, he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been, been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, like Daniel, right? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were all eunuchs. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. But I want to emphasize that last part of verse 12. Notice what he says there again. Some have made themselves eunuch for what? For the sake of the kingdom, right? For the sake of the kingdom of heaven, or the sake of the kingdom of God. Paul is going to dovetail on this idea here in 1 Corinthians over the next couple weeks. We're going to see this. That if a person is choosing to stay single, or feels they're called to singleness, or just is single, and if, as you wait to find your spouse, but here's the idea. Paul wants us all to be focused on kingdom building, the work of the ministry, using the gifts that God has given you to advance the kingdom, to bless the body of Christ right, to use your gifts that God has given you that you might find some fulfillment in what they do, what, what you're doing for the kingdom. But you're kingdom-minded. That's the point. You're kingdom-minded. And one writer said this, for the kingdom. So the single person is able to devote more time, more energy, personal resources to the ministry. And I'm going to put a little, little star there, a little side note. I remember being in Bible college, right? And we're all fired up. We're learning all about God and we're praying all the time. And it's like, I'm called to singleness. I never had that delusion, right? I never did my whole life. I knew I wasn't called to that. But I'm gonna make myself single for the kingdom. And I'm looking at these guys, and gals going, we'll see. Right? We'll see. Because so often we think, and why, what's their motivation? So that's the question: what is the young person's motivation? Again, and I know people that are celibate, and I've known they've been celibate their whole lives. I have a few friends like this. Not many, but a few. So what is it? They think it's more spiritual. Do you see what I'm saying? See, they're not called to it, but they're, they want to be spiritual. They think this will make them more spiritual, right? So they, they want to live a, a, a celibate life. But that's not what the Bible teaches, is it? It's a gift. And some people have it, and some people don't. I wish I had the gift of throwing a baseball 100 miles an hour. I could probably throw it 35 miles an hour, right? Well, but think about it. It's a gift. Either you have it or you don't. And the, But I will say this. For many Christians, there's going to be seasons of celibacy. There is. And we have to have self-control. We have to have restraint. We have to make a covenant with our eyes. We have to make a covenant with our hearts, right? We have to prepare ourselves. My, my good friend, I've shared this with Phil a number of times, the guy who mentored me, um, he was a dentist. He had a lot of money. I remember going to his house, and I walked in, and we're kind of cruising. There's very It's a bachelor pad, very very little furniture in the house. He was always teaching somewhere or doing something. And um, I walk into this little office, and there's a sleeping bag on the ground. I'm like, why is that sleeping bag there? He goes, that's where I sleep. And I'm like, why? And he's like, got to keep my body hard. I can't be soft. I got, when I go on the mission field, we, we're lucky we get a sleeping bag. I got to stay hard. I got to be prepared. I'm like, Okay, cool. And I asked him straight up, like, dude, what do you do when, you when, man, you got the urge? I mean, like, what do you do? He goes, I go, I take a cold shower, and if that don't work, I go for a run, three or four miles. And I'm like, sure you do, right? What are you going to do at 11 o'clock at night, midnight, one o'clock in the morning? He would say, I go for a jog. One night, I'm out with my buddies, and we had a paint gun, and we were, may have been, may not have been messing around with people, Right? And I see this guy, 2 o'clock in the morning, running down, running down baseline. I'm like, oh, let's get this dude. Let's nail him. As we get closer, and as we get closer, I'm, I notice how this guy's running. And I'm like, hey, wait a minute. Don't do anything. I think I know this guy. And they're like, oh, come on. How do you know? I'm like, because this guy runs just like my friend. And it's around 1.30 in the morning, you guys. And as we go by, there is my, my mentor rod. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh my gosh, he really does go out for a run, you know, at 1.30 in the morning. And I'm like, and it, dude, that really, I, I, he didn't tell me he was doing that. He was just out there. And I asked him the next day at church, it's a Saturday night. I'm like, hey, man, uh, did you go running last night? He goes, yeah, I went for like, I don't know, two, three mile run. And I'm like, yeah, I saw you. I'm like, you're crazy. So I'm like, well, got to do what you got to do to temper the flesh. And I'm like, dude, you do it. You do it. And that, he, again, he's one of the most disciplined men that I know. But on my whole point, is, yes, it is possible. and yes, I do know crazy people like this. But again, he's keeping himself for the Lord. He's living for the kingdom. His mind, his body, his soul, his assets, his money was given towards the kingdom. He paid for me to go to Bible college. He paid for my books, right? He, again, what Paul is talking about here, they have the resources. He did not have a wife. He did not have kids. He had a practice, but he used what he had to build the kingdom, kingdom-minded. This Again, I think we live in a country where we're so, we're so sold on what we need through media and through TV and through Instagram and Facebook and all these advertisements are always coming up. The, the clothes, the car, the watch, the shoes, the, the tablet, whatever it is, we buy into that. And we think that's what's gonna fulfill us. But for Collins. Man, his mind and his heart, kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. And he's still that way. He is, um, I was just talking to him the other day. We were at a pastor's thing together. And his wife, he got married at 33 or 34 years old, finally. And he, now his kids, he had three sons. They're all out of college. And his wife told him, you got to slow down. He's 60, he's 65, 66. And his wife, and he's still a dentist. He pastors, he started a church, pastors a church, right? And his wife told him, you gotta slow down. You're working more now than we did when we first got married. And I looked at him, I said, Rod, she's, she's speaking truth. He's like, oh, yeah, I, I just don't know how to stop. And I'm like, well, she listen to your wife, man. Like, she's, you know, younger than him, and she's trying to keep up. But my point is, he is kingdom-minded. And that, that, he gives himself completely to the mission of Christ And I'm going to tell you right now, if you're married or if you're single, I would just say this to us, are we giving ourselves to the mission of Christ? Again, you're not an evangelist, you're not going to go out and do some stuff, but what you can do, are you doing it? What you're called to, are you doing it? Are you befriending people? Are you sharing your faith? Are you inviting them to a relationship with Jesus Christ? You know, there's a great movie coming out right now, it's The Jesus Revolution, right? Right? I've watched parts of it. I'll be honest with you, man. It, it gets me choked up when I look at what God did to a whole generation of people. Right? Calvary Chapels came out of it. Vineyards came out of it. All kinds of Jesus churches throughout the United States came out of it. Right? You see it's beautiful. And it was a move of God's spirit. Like we're seeing in Ashbury right now. It's a move of God's spirit. But I think we have to remember the roots that we have, how this, this even came into being, to remember what God has done. But I'm telling you right now, when people got saved during that movement, they were going for it, right? They were going for it. So my, my only question to myself and you is this, are we still living for that mission? Because Paul's saying it's for the kingdom. If you're going to be single, it's for the kingdom. And if you're married, you still got to be working for that kingdom because that's what God has called us to. Now, I want us to see this. So, again, if we're single, it's a gift. Um, you're meant to be focused on the ministry. You're meant to be giving yourself to the kingdom of God. This is what we're supposed to do with our time. As If you're single, Paul is saying, he's saying, "Man, I wish, Paul says this in verse 9, I wish you guys were all like me. Paul was single. So was Jesus. So was Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They all were single. Do you know that? They all were. So it's not like some, you know, oh, this is some aberration in the Scripture Daniel was single. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were single. God used him mightily. It's a gift, I'm telling you right now. So again, you don't have to be married to be complete. If you're in Christ, the healing has begun. And let him have that perfect work. And again, I I want you to understand this. In this context, know this. The church is young. The church is persecuted. Paul's saying we all have to be all hands on deck if this church is gonna survive. But here's the thing. It's not for everybody, Singleness is not for everybody. As Paul would say here, man, it's better married than a bird in the flesh. We can't, if you don't have that self-control, then get married. It's not a sin. It's not a sin. It's just who you are. So find a godly man. Find a godly woman and marry them. But now let's go on to marriage, this idea of marriage. I want us to understand something. As you, if you read this passage, it almost comes off that Paul is being kind of negative towards marriage, Right? You get this feeling like, yeah, I guess if you got to get married, get married. No, but I want us to be clear. As we've got the whole counsel of God, God created marriage. Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created created them. And he blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. That's verse chapter, again, Genesis verse, chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. And verse... In, chapter, in Genesis 2, verses 24 and 25, Moses writes this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife will be, were both naked and not ashamed. One, one person wrote this, There is no more lovely, oh, Martin Luther wrote this, actually, There is no more lovely, friendly, or charming relationship, communion or company, than a good marriage. And I would say amen to that. I would say amen to that. The writer of Hebrews says this, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Socrates said this, by all means, by all means, Mary, if you get a good wife, you'll be happy. If you get a bad one, you'll be a philosopher. (laughs) It made me laugh. (laughs) But I want us to understand something about marriage, and it is beautiful. When it's done right, when two people are serving each other, putting each other ahead of themselves, forgiving each other, forgiving each other, forgiving each other, forgiving each other, forgiving each other it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> yeah. Someone have a little Amanda when she gets here. Um, but I want to, I, I, I love what this person said. She said, a successful marriage requires falling in love many times, always with the same person. And I think, as I know some of your marriages in this, co- in this congregation, that's what I see. And that's what blesses me. You guys are still dating, still holding hands. There was a couple in our church, and I was, I was talking to this gentleman, and I, saw, and I was telling him, I said, so what have you guys been married, what, three or four years? So, no, we've been married 18 years. I'm like, wow. He goes, why? Wow. I'm like, because you guys still giggle. You're always giggling with each other. You always like have these little looks you give each other. And he started laughing. Because no, oh, that's just our marriage, and I'm all, and it's a beautiful one. And it's a beautiful one. So I want us to see something. In chapters five and it's the second half of chapter six, Paul was dealing with sexual morality, right? Right? The, the, the sexual morality in different ways. I want us to understand this. Sex distorted and perverted by sin. But here in chapter seven, Paul gives us a positive picture of sex. So he's given us a negative picture. With some important correctiveness of it, that he corrects it. But now he also offers a, 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 um, a positive picture. Here, sex and sexuality in the beauty of God's design. So I want us to see this. I, so I want, the reason I, I, I want to emphasize this is because I've counseled people that have been raised in Christian homes where either the, their son or their daughter, they've given them this picture of sex as being dirty, right? Um, being dangerous. Um, you don't want to enjoy it. Um, it it's, just, it's just it's a negative thing. and I'm going to say, as Paul says here, this other spouse suffers. and I've seen it, I've counseled. It's only to have kids, right? And then then sh- stop and you guys are going, who in the heck would ever think that way? I've counseled people and I'm looking I'm like, why do you have this this view of sex? That's not the biblical view. I'll tell you, you ever read the Song of Solomon? Have you ever read the Song of Solomon, right? I mean, geez, it's like, I remember I getting into a little heated discussion with a guy one time, because he, he had the opposing view. And I said, bro, do you believe this is the word of God? Do you believe this right here, word of God? Yo, of course I do. I said, can you go with me to Song of Solomon? I'm gonna read a few verses for you, brother, and you tell me what God's views are on sex. And he was just like, he's turning red. And here's the crazy part of it's um, Tim Keller, Tim Keller from Redeemer Church, he's retired now. But he said, when they translate the Song of Solomon into English, right? He goes, English translators have a terrible time because it could be so graphic in the original language. And it's between a husband and a wife. God's design for intimacy. And remember this in marriage, the two become one flesh. And it's a picture of who? Of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we believe in what? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three becoming one. In marriage, two people become one flesh. That's what we just read in Genesis. How do they become one flesh? In the intimacy of their bedroom in marriage. And it's beautiful. Because you give yourself holy to the other person. And they give themselves holy to you. This is God's design. And to look at it in a negative way It's destroying marriages. And we see it here in Corinthians. Look what he says. He says, The husband should give his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except by agreement, for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul gets it. But this is a problem because in the church in Corinth, again, we looked at these three different camps, but one of the camps in the church of Corinth was encouraging sexual abstinence within marriage. Now, can you imagine... You are 20 years old, you're married, or maybe 18 years old or 16 years old, when they're getting married at this time period, and let's say you're married for a couple of years, and then your spouse says to you, I'm done, store's closed. What do you think the other spouse is going to do? Okay, well, thanks for the good times. i won't to tell you what's going to, because I've, I've canceled two people with this one. They had four children, a set of twins. The wife came to the husband. He was 23, and she says, I don't want to be intimate with you anymore. And he's like, is it me? Because I'm out of shape, I'll get back in shape. Is it me, you're not attractive." She says, no, I just don't want it anymore, I don't need it. What do you think happened to that marriage? Fell totally fell apart. Do you think there's going to be any other conclusion? Now, again, I believe this, and I know in other marriages, medically speaking, something happens. But again, that, that's not a choice. That is something that's given that you have to deal with as a couple. And I remember I had a husband, a good friend of mine, they had kids, they had about four or five kids. He was in his mid-60s and his wife could no longer be intimate. She so you know what he prayed? Lord, take it away from me, the desire. Take it away from me. Take it away from me. She can't, so I, I'm, I can't anymore. Take it away. And they're still married and they're doing fine. But again, they were older. But can you imagine a 23-year-old and if it was the girl, vice versa, it's just not going to be good, right? Why? Because you're withholding something from the marriage. You're withholding yourself from the marriage, and the other one needs it. Now, I have, a, I have this crazy missionary friend. And I'll be honest, if you really know any real crit missionaries, like, they're, they're kind of odd. They really are. I have a lot of friends that are missionaries. I, myself, am kind of odd. I'll admit it. I am. I'm odd, right? I was a missionary for 10 years. This guy, if you meet him, his name is Larry, And I always call him Crazy Larry because he's nuts. He served in South America. God did crazy things. After 9-11, I've shared with you before, he went to Indonesia because he wanted to convert Muslims to Christ right after 9-11. If you have Larry over to your house for dinner, I don't care who you are, after dinner, you'll be having a discussion, having some coffee, whatever, and he'll ask you this if you're a married couple. So how often do you guys do it in a week? What? What? You heard me, often. I he goes. I don't know about you guys. But I want to do it every day, and she doesn't want to do it at all. And you're like, okay, like, okay, Larry. You're like, why are you telling me this? I don't know. I think it's important in a marriage. So I, because I, of what he said, I'm like, so every day, no more. What's the agreement? Uh, three or four times a week. That's, she says she could do that. We're happy. We're happy. And I'm thinking, you're an animal, right? You are an animal. But I want you to see something. That's what. I, and their marriage is awesome. They're friends. They love each other, but they meet in the middle. Do you see that? And I, again, these are I'm, all these instances happen in marriage, and marriages are either enhanced or destroyed. And I want to say this to you too. Maybe you have some trauma in your background. Many people do. I see all the data. I'm going to tell you right now. We're here to help you as a church. You need someone to counsel with. We'll find you the person. God is for your marriage. God is for you to be whole. We are here to help. This is in no way, oh you're bad. Oh, you're bad. Oh my gosh, no. I get it. I've been in ministry too long not to get it. If I don't get it by now, I shouldn't be in ministry. But we're here to help, okay? But in this marriage now, we're looking at marriage. Singleness is a gift. We find our way in singleness. You're not alone in that. We're here to help. If you're married, you have problems. You're not alone in it. We're here to help. We're for you. We're for your marriage. Again, but celibacy is wrong for married people. I would say, excluding health reasons, it's wrong. Again, one camp encouraged abstinence; the other camp taught that marriage. The um, other camp taught marriage uh, was unprofitable and wrong. But Paul speaks to both, and he puts them in the right context. Now, really quickly, there's a negative view of sex. If you have a negative view of sex, it's going to impact your marriage. It's going to impact your intimacy. Now, the Greek thinking when it came to sex was what? The Greek and the Roman thinking was this. It's just a desire like wanting air, (laughs) water, or food. You just got to fill it. You got to eat. When you're hungry, you eat. Again, that's just giving into it. That's not fleeing sexual morality. You're running into it. And that's not the biblical. What does the Bible teach? Our response to this thinking. The Bible teaches that sexual desires are broken and are usually idolatrous. Look at the porn industry around the world right? You don't see them worshiping hamburgers, right? You don't see them worshiping, you know, food. But man, like I've shared with you guys before, you go to Pompeii, you go to, you go to, you go to South Pacific, they have sex tours. It's like, why? Because our sexuality in this world is broken with the fall, and it becomes an idol to us. It becomes an idol. But, 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 but again, but in marriage, We want to flee those appetites. We want to bring them under the power of the Holy Spirit. So what? That we can enjoy what God has meant for us to enjoy in a covenant relationship, a promised relationship with someone else. I'm not going to stray. In my wife, I caught my limit. I caught my limit. And I'm stoked because we are one heart and one mind. Now again... The Puritan view or the Victorian view or the Essenes view, again, sex is an animal passion that must be controlled, so sex is okay, but only only for procreation, only for procreation. You can't enjoy it, right? But what does the Bible teach? The Bible teaches that sex is very good, Genesis one thirty-one. God would not create or command something to be done in marriage that was not good. So intimacy within the marriage is beneficial, right? It's beneficial. It keeps us from sin, I want you to see that. Paul says, don't give in to sexual morality. Don't give in to it. He says that if that's a good marriage. And I want us to keep in mind again the Song of Solomon is filled with barefaced rejoicing in the intimacy of marriage. It's, man, you read it and it's just like when you get to that part with your kids, just wait till they're a little bit older, right? And you move on from that because it's just a little bit too much. So the Bible views sex not primarily. This is what Tim Keller says, the Bible views sex not primarily as self-fulfillment, but as a way to know Christ and build his kingdom. This view, that view undercuts both the traditional society's idolatry of a sex for social standing and the secular society's idolatry of sex for personal fulfillment, sex for personal fulfillment. So why do we get married then? What is the point of it? We find a partner, a partner to go through life. That's why God created them male and female. They were suitable for each other. A friendship between a husband and wife is one of the key ingredients to a good marriage. Friendship. So often I talk to people in marriage and they look at their spouse as adversarial, as their opponent, as someone that needs to be changed and they're the tool that's gonna change them. And I always tell them, that's not your job. Your job is to love and to serve your spouse. Your job is to bring them to Christ I'm, I'm t- this, I say this in weddings all the time. You ever hear of my wedding? I'll, I'll say this. Hey, at the marriage wedding, at the wedding feast of, of Canaan, the couple didn't change water into wine. Jesus did. You're not going to change your spouse either. Only Jesus can. So don't you try through nagging or through guilt on both sides I'm talking about try to change your spouse. You love them, you serve them, you forgive them, and you give them to the Lord and let God do that, right? So what's Paul's recommendation then for, for intimacy, the need? And Paul's recommendation is that the, the need for intimacy is in the, within the marriage. Paul says in verse 3, render, render to your spouse their rights. Render to them. Do not use it as a tool to punish. Do not use it as a tool to manipulate. Do not use it as a tool to get your way. It's not a bargaining chip at the negotiation table. It is something that you are meant to give it's your duty Paul says it's your literally the word you know um, to render is to pay back to pay one's dues is to render it it's a habitual duty it's an obligation it's a specific obligation involved in the marital union that's how one of the writer one of the translators translates it spouses are sexually indebted to each other and must regularly pay up but what a wonderful way of bill to pay. Now here's the thing. I think, you know, if I was with all my counseling, husbands were like, yeah, you see that? You see what Pastor said this morning? Like, come on, pay up, render. You heard the word this morning, come on. And I would say, and have self-control, brother. And love your wife and serve her and put her needs ahead of yourself. And maybe if you weren't such a beast and you're a little bit more romantic, it wouldn't be a wrestling match, right? It wouldn't be something. Can like, you ever notice in TV shows how, I mean, I'll give you an example. Everybody loves Raymond, right? If you guys ever saw that show, it was always an argument. I'm tired, I have a headache. And there's one time, in the, one show, I remember this specifically, where she's in the mood and so she comes on to him and he says, I'm sorry, I'm tired. And he rolls over and, and then she's rejected. And she's like, she starts having these you know, um, thoughts about herself. I'm not attractive anymore. I'm getting older. Oh my gosh, he doesn't find me attractive. And, and as it, the show goes on for that 20 minutes, Raymond is going, no, I have the power. I have the power. And then finally, when she figures out what he's doing, he's, he's like, how do you like being rejected? No, really think about that. And I think there's a poignant, you know, that's something poignant that we ought to think about. Well, if your spouse says to you, hey, you wanna, do you want to? Do you want to meet in bed tonight? Uh, not in the mood. Okay. How many times do you think someone's gonna be able to ask that question again? How many times? If you were to really speak to your spouse about it, and you were to ask them, whether it's the husband or the wife, you ask them, "How did that make you feel when I said that?" I'll, they'll flat out say, "Rejected." rejected. Think about it. Do you like feeling rejected? No. So again, talk about it. Figure it out. Get your own rhythm. But it takes communication and it takes trust and it takes transparency. But do not turn to porn, gentlemen. And now, ladies, I know there's a problem with women now today, too. We don't turn to porn. We don't turn to romantic novels. Right? Right? We don't turn to these things. We pray about it and we talk about it with our spouse. And if need be, make an appointment with Pastor Richie. He'll be more than willing to help you. (laughs) It's really bad. I might even throw Sebastian in there. Just kidding. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that to you or him. So, what's the point? Release your rights to one another. Paul says in verse 5 do not deprive one another. What if if your spouse said to you, I'm starving, give me something to eat. Sorry, kitchen's closed. Don't deprive them. Do not deprive them. You can see almost Paul going, I think if he had hair, he'd probably be pulling it out. Because there are people in that church that thought that celibacy and marriage was making them more spiritual and closer to God. And I would say it is not. It is not. Their withdrawal has deprived their spouses of something that is very important to the well-being and the health of their marriage. Sexual relations between a husband and his wife are God-ordained and through this scripture, God commanded. The proverb says, always be enraptured and intoxicated with her love. We got we to gotta work on this, people. We got to work on this. If you're married and you're, and you're just depriving your spouse of this, you need to rethink yourself. I would say this, put yourself in check before you do real damage to your marriage. But if you were to abstain, Paul says there is a time for that. And and it must be with consent. That means communication. You talk about it. And it's only for a time. It's not for the rest of your marriage, unless again, health Uh, For a time and come together again, he says. Come together again. And again, the important reason is that you give yourself to fasting and prayer. Why is sex so important? Sex is supposed to be wonderful because it mirrors the joy of the relationship in the Trinity. This is Tim Keller, by the way. And because it points to the eternal ecstasy of soul that we will have in heaven and our relationship with God and with one another. He further writes this. Sex between a man and a woman points to the love between the Father and the Son as well as between Christ and the believer. These are all pictures, you guys. And this is what the Bible teaches about it. We are the bride of Christ. I forget who said this. One of the guys said this. He goes, next time, gentlemen, he goes, if you want to know how to be a better husband, or be a, a better husband, he goes, go practice being the bride of Christ. And I was like, hmm, that, you know, twist my thing. But I'm like, we are the bride of Christ. It's always, I hate that imagery because it bothers me, but yet that's who we are as a church. And I really, again, I want you to see something that it, in, in the biblical context we saw the destructiveness of sex in chapters six, five, six, 5, 6, and 7, destructiveness. But now we see the beauty of it, the way God designed it for our marriage. We see the beauty of, sta- of the, any station you're in, God has to be the one put, holding your life together. He's the one who makes us whole, not the marriage. When we get married, it's two halves making each other one. It's like, you know, you complete me, and it's true. But it takes work. I think sometimes we look at movies and it's like, oh, they live happily ever after and if we were raised on the disney movies right oh they're in love and they're singing and the birds all around them and it's like yeah but what happened like a year from now what happened 10 years from now we don't see that and i, th- I think it was charles Ryrie the theologian he says the marriage takes one day but to make a good marriage takes a lifetime and that's our goal right That's our goal. So again, in our singleness, we seek the Lord. Lord, what would you have me do? Help me be content. Teach me to be content, Lord. But I'm not second class. You're not. And if you're married, enjoy the blessings of marriage and don't withhold from each other. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your table now, again, a picture of our unity to you. Lord, meet us at your table.